Hello and welcome to episode 5 of Batman Nightcast, the podcast that chronicles Batman's comic book adventures since 1986 during the post-crisis on Infinite Earths era of DC Comics. I'm Chris Franklin. And I'm Ryan Daly. And after several fill-in issues by visiting creators, the comic we're covering in this episode, Detective Comics number 569, gives us the first proper ongoing creative team on a post-crisis Batman title. Woohoo! Woohoo, yeah! <laughs> <laughs> And I'm just going to be honest up front. It's one of my all-time favorite Bat creative teams, Mike W. Barr, Alan Davis, and Paul Neary. Are you pumped, Ryan? I am beyond pumped. I'm, like, shaking over here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, since Ryan's got the tremors. uh, (laughs) The DTs, basically. That's for something else. He's got the DTs. (laughs) I will say this isn't the first Bat rodeo for any of these creators, uh, Mike W. Barr has the most experience with the character, so it made sense to shine the bat signal on him first. So without further ado, here is Nightcast's spotlight on Mike W. Barr. Mike W. Barr was born in 1952, and his professional debut came in this very title, Detective Comics, with issue number 444, cover dated December 1974 to January 1975. The story was a backup featuring one of Barr's favorite characters, Batman's Justice League teammate and longtime Detective co-star, The Elongated Man. Barr was a huge fan of mysteries, and this would continue to influence his mainstream comics work. Barr continued to write for both DC and Marvel until taking an editorial position at DC in 1981, a function he would serve in off and on for the next several years. In 1982, he and Brian Ballin launched their Camelot 3000 maxi-series, the first long-form miniseries title, and one of the first comic series distributed only to the direct market. Barr's association with the Batman family proper began with a Batgirl story in Detective Comics number 490, 1980. He first wrote The Dark Knight himself in Batman number 327, also from that year. Barr became one of the regular rotating writers on the Batman team-up title The Brave and the Bold towards the end of that title's run. As team-up titles fell out of favor and team books were in, Barr and longtime B&B artist Jim Aparo collaborated on creating a super team of their own, mixing established characters with their own creations in the mold of the runaway successes of the X-Men and the New Teen Titans. In the final issue of The Brave and the Bold, issue number 200, the creative team introduced Batman and the Outsiders, and I know Cisco is really excited. The next month, the team re- <laughs> the next month the team received their own ongoing title, with Batman dramatically quitting the Justice League to lead his own team of heroes his way. Barr was one of the first writers to explore Batman's obsessive nature and his difficulty in dealing with others. This eventually led to Batman splitting from the team and the title changing to Adventures of the Outsiders, while the team got a new direct sales-only title, just called The Outsiders, like the Teen Titans and the Legion of Superheroes. In addition to his Batman and the Outsiders work, Barr penned several memorable Batman solo tales, including an epic showdown with Ra's al Ghul in Batman Annual No. 8, drawn by Trevor Von Eden, which we keep referencing on this podcast, and Batman Special No. 1 with art by Michael Golden, and featuring the classic story The Player on the Other Side. With the issue we're covering, Detective No. 569, Barr was still writing the direct-only Outsiders title. A few months down the road, Batman would rejoin the team, giving Barr two chances to write The Dark Knight each month for quite some time. During his time on Detective, Barr would write perhaps his most famous and impactful Batman work, the Batman Son of the Demon graphic novel with art by Jerry Bingham. The story, detailing the birth of Batman's son with Talia, would quickly be labeled out of continuity, but their son would eventually rear his head in Grant Morrison's Batman run, and a version of him can currently be seen as the latest Robin, Damian Wayne. 
This project would lead to some disagreements between himself and editor Denny O'Neill, who of course was a co-creator of Talia and Rachel Gould, and Barr's Batman output would become far more sporadic in the following decades, mostly confined to specials and one-off stories. His last Batman project was an issue of the Batman 66 comic, issue number 22 in 2015. In addition to his Batman and Outsiders work, Barr is perhaps best known for his Maze Agency series created with a young Adam Hughes and initially published by Kamiko. He has penned many Star Trek comic stories across several decades, including the initial runs of the title at both Marvel and DC. He was also one of the key architects of Malibu's Ultraverse line, writing the popular Mantra title. So, Ryan, anything you'd like to add about Mike W. Barr? When I started thinking about it, I was like, oh, yeah, I've read tons of Mike W. Barr stuff. I love this guy. And then when I actually like looked at his bibliography, I, I was stunned that I realized like I think all of my experience with him so far has been Batman-related stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I, I have Camelot 3000. I've got all 12 issues of that sitting on my you know books-to-read stack. I haven't read the elongated man stories. I don't have those particular issues of Detective Comics. I would love to get them now that I know they're out there. I didn't realize that he had done some elongated man backup strips, but I love me some Ralph Dibney, so I'm going to have to seek out those issues. But yeah, I think my first experience with him was reading the Batman Year 2 trade paperback, uh, and then Son of the Demon, Bride of the Demon, those... um, And then, you know, sort of retroactively going back and getting some of his other Batman stuff and some Batman and The Outsiders. But, yeah, like as much as I I like him and I I liked his output, I think so far my exposure to him is just Batman or Outsiders related. Yeah, he he wrote a lot of Batman. I mean, (laughs) yeah, yeah, he did. (laughs) I mean, it's not it's not hard to imagine. I mean, he wrote a lot of Batman, and a lot of Star Trek. But yeah, it's his uh, elongated man stuff is really good. He he really had a love for the character. Uh, he wrote the elongated man story in Detective Number Five Hundred, uh, for instance. So I think pretty much any chance he could get, he would write Ralph yeah. and Sue, of course. So I'm sure he was one of the many who weren't happy with Identity Crisis. <laughs> I don't know that. I'm just guessing. Yeah. I'm just guessing. Um, The other thing you mentioned, and we'll probably talk a little bit about this more on the next time we cover a detective episode because it veers towards the art side, but you mentioned Jim Aparo working on The Outsiders and then being succeeded by Alan Davis, who we'll talk more about. Like In in my reality, in my alternate universe, my Elseworlds version of what happened – those creators didn't work on Batman and the Outsiders. They worked on the Justice League. You know, mm. Jim Aparo had a run on Justice League of America and was succeeded on it by Alan Davis. In my Ooh. fantasy world, that, that happened. But uh, <laughs> I think the closest we get is a few random issues and uh, things like JLA The Nail, which we talked about on uh, the Supermates one time. Yes, we did. We did. Uh, yeah, I think that's, that's a good point. I mean, it, it makes you wonder why DC, you know – I've always wondered why it's like a top flight flagship title, why DC doesn't sacrifice a lesser book to get the big book back up and running, you know? So it makes you wonder why, you know, Jim Aparo, well, when, like when Perez had to leave Justice League after, you know, he took over after Dick Dillon passed away and he couldn't stay on it too long because he got more involved in Titans, New Teen Titans than he initially expected and decided that he, he wanted to focus more on each issue. Uh, so, you know, why not pull Jim Aparo from the dying Brave and the Bold title 
and put him on Justice League rather than come up with some new team, you know. So <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I mean maybe even back then they were like, well, a new issue one will be the better seller. It'll do better than Justice League. So yep, true, Good true. Okay, so we're gonna take a quick break, and then when we come back, we're gonna talk about the first issue of the Bar Davis Run Detective Comics number five sixty nine. Don't go away. Justice League International Blahaha Podcast. A new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We'll be going issue by issue in release order, tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter. Batman. Dr. Fate. Black Canary. Fire. Ice. Maxwell Lord. Oberon. Captain Marvel. Rocket Red. Captain Adam. Mr. Miracle. Guy Gardner. Booster Gold. Blue Beetle. Nort! And many, many more. Justice League International. Blahaha Podcast. Part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? All right, so we're back, and we're going to talk about, as we said, Detective Comics number 569. It was cover dated December 1986, and according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, it was on sale September 25th, 1986. The cover by Alan Davis and Paul Neary is festooned with floating Joker cards. Standing on one of the cards near the reader is Batman. The Dark Knight is desperately trying to free a vacant-eyed Robin from a veritable straitjacket made of some green, sticky goop. Batman looks angrily over his shoulder at the cackling figure of the Joker who is holding an unconscious Catwoman. What do you think of this cover, Ryan? I like it. I don't love it. And uh, the one sort of complaint that I do have, and and nice word festooned, by the way, um, <laughs> I, I look at it and I'm a little bit overwhelmed by all of the playing cards and everything and, and, and how cluttered. And if I could improve it, the only thing I would do is if like this was a camera, I would just push in a little bit tighter, you know, make Batman and Robin in the foreground a little bit bigger, a little bit more prominent, give us a little bit of a better glimpse of the Joker and Catwoman, just make them bigger and sort of crop out some of the cards because it is a lot of cards. It is a really cool image. I like it. I just wish it was a little bit closer on our heroes and a little bit less being bombarded by all the cards. I, I like it. I just had that one complaint about it. Yeah, I, I can see that. I think the, the figure of the Joker is kind of sketchy and, and, and small and, and his, his details not real sharp on him so if you pulled in closer that would help with that and yeah you're, like you said the there may be a few too many cards on the cover it's it's similar to the cover of batman number 11 uh by fred ray where batman's decking the joker amongst a floating deck of cards <laughs> while robin's like grinning you know that was actually put into the uh, opening of the uh, batman return of the cape crusaders animated movie which cindy and i just covered on supermates yep uh, <laughs> plug but it, it's similar to that but yeah i can see what you're saying i think next issue we get a, a stronger cover but we'll get into that next time but i do think though that this cover does kind of leap out at you because it is different on the stands i think it you know visually you've, you've got to be wondering okay there's all these cards and 
the fact that both Robin and Catwoman are in danger on the cover pretty much demands you pick this up and find out what's going on. Plus, yeah. anytime Batman's fighting the Joker, you better buy it. You know? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, there's one other thing that I know about this cover, and it's it's not something I would have thought about until you mentioned it on the last time we did a Detective Comics, but what word does not appear on this cover? Batman. Batman is not on it. doesn't say Batman in Detective Comics. It doesn't say Detective Comics starring Batman. It's just Detective Comics at this point. Yeah, they've gone back to just Detective Comics. I mean, through the 80s, um, pretty much from when Detective went from a dollar comic back to a regular-sized comic, there was a little banner up top that said Detective Comics starring and then Batman, the big logo. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, since the crisis – since well, it's not since crisis, but since the DC editorial shift and Denny O'Neill's taken over – They've gone back to Detective Comics, but last time we talked about how the Detective logo was pushed over to the side and and uh, the because le- you, you had that Legends banner and and all that. But this time it's huge going across the cover. Yep. <laughs> so we're back to that. Okay, with that we'll jump into the story inside, which is called Catch as Cat Scan, <laughs> or, or Catch as Cats Can, but it looks like Cat Scan, which is part of the story we'll get into. Mike W. Barr was a writer, Alan Davis and Paul Neary artists, John Workman letterer, Adrian Roy colorist, Denny O'Neill editor. At a medical supply warehouse, nine cat burglars dressed in yellow cat costumes attempt to steal an experimental cat scan device. They find their objective and Batman and Robin who are waiting for them. The dynamic duo leaps into action and makes quick work of their feline foes. But one thief manages to get away and takes a security guard at gunpoint. Batman's calm demeanor surprises Robin, but the Dark Knight knows the gunman won't escape. As he makes his way outside, his old boss, the Catwoman, assaults him. She claws her former stooge's face and whips him with her cat of nine tails. Having heard rumors of her old gang's proposed heist, the former Princess of Plunder turned on her former colleagues and now seeks the approval of the Cape Crusader. Later on a nearby rooftop, she attempts to woo Batman further, even calling him Bruce and offering to discuss things further at her place. But while the stoic masked manhunter is convinced Catwoman has turned over a new leaf, he is uncertain that their line of work has any room for romance. Catwoman storms off in a huff, and while he and Robin swing away, Batman confesses that his career as a crime fighter has doomed every romantic relationship he has ever entered into. While the local DJ plays Glenn Fry's You Belong to the City, the dynamic duo head homeward. Elsewhere in Gotham, at the abandoned Jester Novelty Factory, the Joker is having quite the tantrum, disgusted with an uninspired bank heist he and his hoods have been developing. While the rest of his gang worries about the recent absence of cash flow into the organization, the diminutive sidekick known as Straight Line pedals into Joker's office on a tricycle, dressed as an old-time reporter, and brings a copy of the Gotham Gazette. The headline reads, Dynamic Trio Nabs Gang. Delightfully inspired once more, the clown prince of crime cackles with glee. Sometime later, following a bat cave training session, Bruce and Jason's dinner is cut short by the bat signal. Arriving at police headquarters, Jim Gordon, now reduced in rank to captain, quickly turns off the signal, fearing the new deputy mayor may further bust him down to sergeant. In Gordon's office, they find a purring catwoman slinkily awaiting on the couch, much to Robin's chagrin. Gordon produces the reason he called, a Joker playing card left at one of the police precincts with this note scrawled on the back. Milling around for a clue, old foe? You'll never get the score. The Joker. Robin, Catwoman, and Gordon offer their own interpretation to the meaning, but Batman deduces that several underlying letters in the message point to 
the Gotham Public Library's exhibit of a rare first edition of Joe Miller's joke book. An enthusiastic Robin answers, Holy Gutenberg, let's go! But his mentor stops the young boy and advises him to never do that again, leaving the young crime fighter puzzled. At the library, the Joker nabs the book, and Batman, Robin, and Catwoman arrive on cue. The Harlequin of Hate engages Catwoman in a battle of words and fisticuffs, admonishing her for her change in stripes. He then shocks her with the electrified tip of his cane, rendering her unconscious. Batman hears the Joker's triumphant laughter and rushes to Catwoman's aid, but he and Robin are stopped by Straight Line, who blasts them with a strange cannon. The goop that hits them hardens into a life-size version of a Chinese finger puzzle, tightening its grip with every move they make. Batman warns his young partner not to struggle as the Joker makes off with Catwoman. Back at his hideout, the Joker hosts his own in-house talk show with the unconscious Catwoman as his special guest. He then welcomes the immoral psychologist known as Dr. Moon, who espouses his belief that man has no free will and that the human mind can be shaped by forces on the body. Moon informs his client that the stolen CAT scan device can be modified to reprogram the human mind. He hooks Catwoman up to the device but prefers to wait until she is awake so he can monitor her pain levels. The Joker is delighted with his colleague's sadism. Back at the library, the Cape Crusaders are still trapped in the Joker's torturous Chinese body puzzle. Robin is passed out, but Batman uses his years of training to relax his mind and body, somehow allowing his muscles to go limp and fluid. He manages to lift the trap off of him and then cuts Robin loose. Bruised but not broken, the dynamic duo take after their missing ally and her demented captor. Now awake, Catwoman threatens the clown prince, but the Joker assures her that soon she'll want to help him, not harm him. When Catwoman asks why he is doing this, the Joker assures her it is for her own good and that we thieves have to stick together. Dr. Moon turns on his modified CAT scan device and Selina Kyle's screams of pain are only masked by the sounds of the Joker's insidious laughter. Next issue, The Last Laugh. What did you think, Ryan? Uh, it's a good issue. It, without qualification, I well, I, I didn't like it as much as Batman 400, but I mean that's a tall order because that was such a large, sort of all-encompassing milestone issue. Uh, but certainly since our first episode, this is the best issue that we have uh, covered so far by a pretty wide margin. <laughs> um, and and the and the first thing that I'll say about it, and I don't want to say so much because obviously we're going to do a, a spotlight on Alan Davis the next time we talk about a Detective Comics issue, but he draws Batman and these characters with such an energy that I think was kind of unlike anything that had been seen on Batman up to that point. I'm not saying he was better than Neil Adams or Jim Aparo or a Marshall Rogers or anything, but there's just something about his Batman that feels different. And it, yeah, it's just, there's this kinetic that is so, especially when we're coming off of the Jim Starlin issue that we talked about last time, uh, mm-hmm. and, and what we'll be looking at in Batman going forward, whether it's Dennis Cohen, uh, Mazzuchelli, or any of those guys, like Davis's Batman, it pops, it, and, and other people, and Sir, I think Michael Bailey has, has called it, basically this is a 1980s take on the Batman 66 TV show. And we'll see how well that that holds up, but it does feel like you, you, I almost have that feeling that that zaniness, that not 
camp, but the excitement feel of the Batman TV show coming off of these pages. It just feels louder, a little bit more exaggerated and in your face. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of the appeal, and, and I agree completely on Alan Davis. And like you said, we'll we'll save this mm-hmm. mostly for next time. But, but yeah, I, I'll just say I totally agree with what you said. <laughs> um, I, I think I think this is probably the most energetic art and and fresh take we've had since the Marshall Rogers uh, Terry Austin run. I think the thing that that I really love about this is that it does have that very classic feel it it feels like the the comics that the batman tv show was based on Mm -hmm. like the later golden age early silver age comics of the late 40s through 50s and i think around i think part of the reason that i personally love this run so much besides just the fact that it's just damn good is that at this time the age i was so i was i was right at like 11 almost 12 years old when this came out and this was right around the time that I was realizing that, you know, the old TV show was a parody. It was a satire. Mm. Um, as a kid, when you watch it, it's completely straight to you. You don't get it. And as you get older, you get the joke. And so this run came along right at the right time for me because it basically took what I loved about the TV show. And although it did have some humor in it, which we'll get into it was played more straight. So this was a straight version of the TV show that I was just realizing was a comedy. Mm-hmm. So it, it satisfied that need for me to, you know, I was in that, why is it funny now? I don't understand. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, a lot of people, a lot of, especially a lot of fans go through a period with the Batman TV show where they like hate it mm-hmm. for about a decade. You know, they're just like, it's silly, it's stupid, it's, you know, it's corny and, I never really went through that phase. I, I think I've, my analogy has been that, you know, the Batman TV show was the uh, the, the, the uncle that I loved that I kind of realized when I got older he was kind of crazy. <laughs> and I still loved him, but he was a little weird. And then, you know, uh, you know, when I got out of my teen years and we saw it, you know, I just accepted the fact that he was kind of crazy and I just loved him just as much as I always did, you know, that type of thing. Uh, so... <laughs> But uh, yeah, this is a very classic Batman approach, and it's like we said, it's interesting because um, Max Allen Collins said his favorite Batman was the finger spring Batman, and he does kind of touch on that in some places, but this is pretty much a pure distillation of it into the 1980s yeah. of the finger spring Batman. Yeah. And one of the things, it's it's a question that we have asked sort of every time, where this sort of fits into the Batman chronology of like the post-crisis, because this story, as we will see when we get into the kind of the details, is very reverential to pre-crisis continuity and pre-crisis ideas, mm-hmm. presenting them a little bit more seriously, a little bit more sophisticated maybe. But the relationships, the tone, everything like this is, is steeped in the Batman lore of pre-crisis. Yes. Meanwhile, what's going to be happening in the Batman title very soon is going to be changing all of this and perhaps retconning over this run. So we'll... Or, yeah, we're still we're still in this weird little time where it's like, okay, it's... Yeah, we're after Crisis on Infinite Earths, but... Are we? Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree totally. I mean, because the biggest thing being... Of course, and then we'll get this in the detail, but the biggest thing being the portrayal of Catwoman yep. and her relationship to Batman, which her being a an ally to Batman and, and basically renouncing her, her criminal ways goes back to the early 80s, uh, maybe even late, like 79. She Selena Kyle showed up as a supporting character 
and a romantic interest for Bruce Wayne. And there were a few lapses back and forth where she kind of came off as an adversary. I think that the biggest one being when she saw Vicki Vale as a, as a rival for Bruce's affections. But the idea that she knew who Batman was, that she was a sometimes ally, was something that ran all throughout the, the 80s and, and, and was pretty heavy. Uh, of a of a subplot or a, a part of Doug Minch's run right before this. So yeah, this is definitely you know this isn't saying well that's all been wiped out we don't have to deal with that. No, they're they're dealing with it. You know, which which is interesting that they're dealing with it. <laughs> Thinking about Barr and his storytelling and certainly his approach to these characters, and, and you pointed out during the synopsis, I mean, they talk. There are certainly lines and, and feelings about their dialogue that feel like they're lifted from that classic 60s show. And then sometimes he, he puts a button on that. Like right on page two, the first time we see Batman and Robin, Batman calls him chum. Mm-hmm. It's like okay, and it really stood out to me. It's like okay, okay. like it, it, that. I had to kind of work my way into. It's like okay, this is the type of Batman that we're getting. And Robin, boy, he likes to talk in this issue, and he <laughs> likes his puns and he likes his wordplay. And there, there were a few times, like the the scene when they're in Gordon's office, when you know Robin does the holy Gutenberg Batman, and and Batman like pulls him aside and says, "Don't ever do that again." <laughs> And it took me actually a minute to like catch up to it. I was like, wait a minute, what where did Robin screw up? Like was he being too excited in front of the others? Like did he did he contradict something that Batman said? I was like, why is Batman pissed? And then I had to think about it. I was like, Oh, I get it. It's them making fun of the holy whatever Batman thing from the sixties. I was like, Okay, I get it. Do I like that or don't I? Uh, it was kinda like I mean it's it it works if you know that it's a joke, but if it doesn't I don't know. I, I, there were just a, there were a few times when they had those sort of callbacks to the show when I felt like I don't know if it, I don't know if it was working. What do you think? Do you do you think that, that that it was it was working or that those jokes worked? I love that. Okay. That's uh, that's always been one of the exchanges in a comic that's jumped out at me. That's why I put it. I couldn't stop myself from putting it in the synopsis. Yeah. I tried. I just couldn't. So. <laughs> But I think, I, like you, I think you would be derelict in your duties if you didn't. It is <laughs> it is an important moment in the story. <laughs> well, I think the thing I like about it is it works on several levels. It works on the level that okay, this is even though Batman calls Robin chum, which which I'll get come back to that later about the synthesis of several kinds of Batman. Even though he calls him chum, you know, even though there's other references to the you know, it feels more like the TV show. It it could be Barr and Davis, you know, saying, okay, this the holies were a bridge too far. We're not getting getting that silly. We're poking fun at the old show. Or you could take it as this is Batman pointing to Jason. Don't do that annoying thing that Dick used to do. Mm. It's annoying. Don't do that. You know, which <laughs> also works. And it works on if you buy into if you're still going by the pre-crisis dissolution of the Bruce Dick partnership that was on good terms. You know, it ended amicably. I can never say that word amicably. Mm-hmm. It, or if you go by what's coming, where it was a less than nice uh, departure of Dick, a less than uh, uh, one that I hate. Um, right. right. <laughs> uh, then it also works. You can take it several ways, in comic or out. You know, but I, I think it's just. It is a little meta, you know. I mean, it's it's right there, but I think that's part of the fun that you, they just were having fun with this. I think that's and here's what I'll say. This is sort of my problem with the line, and you gave a number of explanations. And if if I can accept one of those, then cool. I think my problem is, as you said, 
everybody or most people kind of go through that phase where if you grew up watching the 66 show or if you grew up watching the old Batman TV series, you loved it. A lot of people then went through a phase where they're like, oh, this is cheesy, it's corny, it's it's childish, it's stupid. And there was this sort of backlash against the show. And a lot of people feel like that at some point in their life. This feels, the line to me read like somebody in that point in their life or, mm. or an editorial in, at that point in their life with a very sort of cynical tone of we're not doing that, that was stupid and kind of mm. like, and, and saying we're more serious than that. Now, I'm not saying that that's what Barr's intention was. I'm not saying that that's what O'Neill like would have, would have been coming from in his place. At, like, so if you can come up with another explanation and you provided a couple, if it's just sort of like a tongue and cheek, like don't do what Dick used to do, something like that, I think I can I can roll with that and I can let it slide. I just don't want I don't like the idea that they would be poking fun at the old show from a place of cynicism or meanness because right. they th- because they think it's less legitimate now that we're in the eighties and we take things so seriously. I don't want to believe that if I can. Excuse it if I can find another another way to to make it work, another way to square that circle. Then I can be okay with it. Gotcha. Well, I, I understand that. Yeah. I, I just I guess I, I maybe because I was somewhat in that place with the show, mm-hmm. uh, maybe that's why I took to it so much. You know, so <laughs> that could explain it why I've, why I've liked it so much. But you know, we we come back around to we've mentioned this as uh, on the show before, but I really do think that Barr is one of the best writers at taking the different iterations of Batman and making them work together because his Batman does call Robin Chum. He is pretty, you know, I mean, he's, he seems like a good father figure mm-hmm. to Jason, you know, and, 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 but also a mentor, but he does, he does seem warm, you know, he's warmer than some other Batman would be in, in later, in later years toward Robin. But, you know, Barr's Batman sometimes skirts that edge of being a, a pretty ruthless Avenger. I mean, even the fact that when he's fighting these these cat men, the guy pulls – one of them pulls a gun. Batman takes his hand, twists his wrist, and turns it towards some anesthetic gas and shoots the, the gas can, which then knocks all them out while Batman covers his face up with his cape. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, so Bat, Batman isn't above using a guy to use a gun, you know, <laughs> so <laughs> – which is which is interesting, you know. I mean, he's he he's skirting that that edge, and and we'll see one an instance in the next issue that I know Mike Bailey likes to point out too that something yeah. Batman does that's actually pretty like oh wow. <laughs> so <laughs> you, damn Batman, you work with a child. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Actually, okay, that was one point. So after after Catwoman shows up and she she takes out the last of the criminals, Batman and Catwoman are on the roof. Jason is standing like twenty feet away. Kind of like pretending like he's not listening to mommy and daddy talk. She's basically throwing herself at him. And he has this line that says, please, Selena, not in front of the boy. Yeah. And like that was another line where I was like, okay, I get it. It's kind of cute, but it's really dismissive of your so-called partner and really hanging this light on the fact that he's a kid and you're putting him in danger. Like, <laughs> it's like I, I can suspend my disbelief a lot when it comes to Robin palling around with Batman, but that a line like that sort of makes it harder. The, the way the way Davis draws Robin too. Again, we're, oh, we need to save, save a lot of it later. But he's a, he's a very elfin looking yes, Robin. Yes. I mean, he looks like a little sprite jumping around. He looks like a little 
a little kid. I mean, he he makes the costume work like that. He's constantly in motion. He's bouncing around. He's he's riding a a, a table with defibrillator paddles and shocks the <laughs> shocks the cat man and which which I think is cool. And like you say, he's got awful awful puns. He's this little he's the laughing young daredevil of 1986. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's Robin distilled back to his purest you know punster form really. Yeah. Uh, and uh, which we haven't seen in a long time. I mean, obviously by the time that Dick in the eighties, you know, he was, you know, in the teen Titans, he was very serious. He even in a couple of the teen Titans issues, he even, you know, talked about how, you know, beast boy slash changeling was taking over his, his punning, you know, that all the old puns he used to throw out because he was a serious tactician and leader now, you know, Mm -hmm. and the Jason Todd of the pre-crisis era usually was shown to be a little less. I mean, he would make jokes and quips. He wasn't sullen or anything, but he was a little, less confident than Jason here seems to be. This is for all intents and purposes is a young Dick Grayson. Uh, yeah. What we've got right here. I mean, it, the, the only real difference that we see is, is in the bat cave training session when Batman teaches him not to rely on his utility belt. Cause Batman just cuts it right off of him when he goes for it. <laughs> right. <laughs> but you know, you could say, well, that's, that was Dick when he was, you know, early in his training too. But that's the only real nod other than he calls him Jason that we get that this isn't the laughing young daredevil Dick Grayson, you know. Right, right. The first time that we see Catwoman on page five, the last panel on that, Alan Davis makes her look sexy as hell. Um, but like with the two slits running up the front of her thighs and the shading, it's like, boy, that art really seems to be accentuating her nether regions. Um, yes, it does. And I have zero problem with that. Me neither. Um, it, it certainly works for the theme of what is in the next page with her throwing herself at Batman and him kind of like, nope, this isn't appropriate. There's a child in the room or on the rooftop that is. Uh, you, you get the impression that Batman's not entirely comfortable with being around Catwoman and Robin at the same time, period. I mean, it just because she and, – and that's kind of a carryover from the TV show because whenever Julie Newmar – was around Adam West. I mean, he would, you know, not to make a pun, but he'd get, you know, <laughs> stiff as boards, and <laughs> and she would be, you know, slinking all around him while Robin was, you know, rolling his eyes and saying, holy mush or something, right. you know. Yeah, I, I, but, I love that part in the return of the Cape Crusaders that you talked about with Cindy on the latest Supermates too. That was, I loved when, when Robin and Catwoman were interacting and the holy, fa- holy faster pussycat kill, kill. <laughs> yes. And, <laughs> That she's like awesome. I thought. You, she's like I always thought you did like watching me or something. But yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, Davis is. I know I'm holding back on my Davis art comments as much as I can. But his Catwoman. I always think about the Who's Who page that he did around this time in the Who's Who uh, update, update yep. eighty seven. I think. Yeah, uh, would have been yeah. And it. Um, wow. I mean, uh, yeah. That the only person who made the purple dress work any better possibly is Dave Stevens in the previous who's who (laughs) in the previous who's who. And that's Dave Stevens. Uh, (laughs) But wow. Yeah, that's all I'm going to say. You know, what's really while we are briefly talking about Davis's art, his Joker is like he is so pencil thin. I mean, my God, he's a stick. (laughs) I think Jack Skellington from The Nightmare Before Christmas is the corpse of the Joker. He's got that physiology. (laughs) Nice. I like that. Yeah, yeah, no, you're you're right. Like just like pencil thin, and it's it's one of the few things that I'm not crazy about. Like the Joker's first scene in this, like with him 
this was one where I, I felt like I was like, okay, I'm not sure Barr has the right voice for the Joker yet. Um, it gets better, it, it improves, but just like in this first scene, we're supposed to see the Joker is depressed, and his first line, bah, all is wormwood and bitter vetch. My genius has flown, my inspiration is gone. I was like, that's a Joker line? I would have bought that from like three other Batman rogues before I would have guessed that was a Joker line. It's a little penguiny. Exactly. Yeah. He was my first thought. I was like, could have been the penguin, could have been, but like, like who says all is wormwood and bitter veg? Like, what the, what? The, I haven't seen those words together. <laughs> yeah. Other than that line, though, I could hear Mark Hamill throughout this. I mean, I think this really sounds like, I think partially because the Joker was uninspired and, and couldn't quite figure out a, a good gag in mm. Mad Love. You know that was one of the oh, that yeah, was yeah. one of the, the big the big story plot lines of of Mad Love, which is why Harley you know goes out of her way to impress him, and then of course that backfires by coming up with a uh, with a plan to catch Batman. But I could hear Hamill, and I think part of it, while I do kind of think maybe da- my one criticism is maybe Davis's Joker is a little too thin, his face and everything. His body type and his face, in a way, remind me of the filmation model sheet, which was based on Carmine Infantino's Joker. But he's got the like the deep shadows around his eyes. That looks like the animated Joker, especially mm-hmm. the first design. Mm-hmm. It, I think that helped with the whole Hamill thing. But I could just, of course, I can pretty much hear Mark Hamill's voice in almost every Joker story. But this one, it just, I mean, I could, it just, I had no absolute nope. Every line I read after that first one was was Hamill coming through. So that's funny because I mostly hear Adam West and Burt Ward when I read Batman and Robin's lines in this one, as opposed to Kevin Conroy. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, we do get another uh, pop culture reference in terms of a song being used in the last issue of Batman that we just talked about. They referenced a few bands and a few modern uh, things going on. Now we get the actual use of a song being dropped, which hey, I wonder if our listeners will be hearing that song in this episode. Uh, they better. That's all good. <laughs> when we get to the uh, Bat Cave, there is a costume in glass at the very bottom of that page. Mm-hmm. That's got to be the like the Thomas Wayne Batman costume, right? I would think so. I mean, well, it, it can't be a Robin costume, would it? No, it looks like it looks like Thomas Wayne's Batman costume. Yeah, and it looks like the either the monk or the Red Hood's costume is in front of it, back toward Batman and Robin, or maybe that's a stalagmite. I think it's a stalagmite. Yeah, that's a stalagmite. Okay, never mind. It's colored more red though, so huh. but I think it is a stalagmite. Yeah. 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 Okay. So if that's like the Thomas Wayne, then at this point in that continuity, then that costume happened that was used. Uh, yes. I think like once we'll get to later on, I think that costume or in, in glass is kind of forgotten about or intentionally omitted and replaced by another costume. But uh, spoilers mm-hmm. for – I can't imagine anybody doesn't know where <laughs> these characters are going. But uh. <laughs> Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, speaking of headquarters, the Joker's headquarters looks like something straight out of the Golden Age or the Silver Age or, or the TV show. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And and while we're in the Joker's headquarters, I might as well get this out of the way. What do you think of Straight Line? Is this an existing character? I don't think so. Okay. I think this is new to this story. Because that was like my first thought. I was like, boy, it seems like these henchmen like have a history or whatever. Like this felt like – and again, like something like – it's a nice bit of world building because they treat him like this is a regular guy who's part of Joker's gang that has his own little his own little shtick. But I was like, I don't think I've ever seen or heard of this guy before or again. But it's uh, – I'm fine with him. I can't decide. I, I think it's kind of a fun little gag because if you read, if you look through the book, 
He's dressed as an old-time reporter. Mm-hmm. Then he's a chain gang prisoner with a sledgehammer at the library when he breaks the case open. He's he's dressed as Rambo talking about uh, Vietnam and <laughs> when he when he blasts Batman and Robin. He's a lion tamer when they take Catwoman away in a little tiny lion cage. And then he's 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 like a typical Ed McMahon type during the Joker's talk show. And then a medical assistant when he's helping Doctor Moon. So it's like this little sight gag, this running sight gag of what what's he going to wear? You know, what's he what's he got on? And and I didn't even make he, the connection that they're all the same guy, but you're right. Yeah, they're they're all they're all straight line and different, and he doesn't really seem to have time in a couple places to change his outfit, but he does. <laughs> so he, he reminds me of Woozy Winks for some reason. Yeah, I don't think after this storyline we see him again. But the Joker, you know, just like the malls on the TV show, or the Joker had that one assistant briefly in the '60s called Gabby, who was a dwarf with a little cone nose like a clown nose and a jester's outfit you know they they run through these these sidekicks which is really weird that harley quinn she was invented for the same reason she was meant to be just a one-off character like this mm-hmm. but she stuck <laughs> obviously <laughs> she did uh once batman and robin show up at police headquarters batman calls him captain yes did he get demoted? I mean, because he says, he says, you know, I better turn this off before I'm busted down to sergeant. So I'm getting the impression that the deputy, this time it's the deputy mayor who was right. causing him problems. Last time it was the deputy commissioner who was causing him problems. Except he outranks the deputy commissioner because he is the commissioner. Right. But in right. this one, it's like busted down to sergeant. Like he would still be a lieutenant between captain and sergeant. But so, yeah, I, I get, I took that line that he was, he was more or less kind of like joking, but it's, uh, yeah, that line, like when Batman called him captain, I was like, wait a minute, is this is this story take place much earlier in their history? It can't, really. No, but. and it's weird. It's, I asked the same question. Okay, was he demoted, or is this the new incontinuity thing at the moment that he has not yet been commissioner, you know, that he's still at the captain phase yet to be promoted to commissioner? Right. But the fact that he's worried about getting demoted makes me think he's worried about getting demoted again, right. even though he doesn't really say that. Yeah. So I don't know. It's it's really strange. And I, I know that, you know, soon, of course, we'll be in Batman year one and Batman and then we'll be in Batman year two here. And Gordon's rank is less than commissioner, obviously, in those flashback stories. But so I don't know if it was the idea that. They floated the idea of him, you know, slowly making his way up to commissioner or he has been demoted. It's it, it's it's another one of those weird, OK, there's very little coordination going on yeah. here. Yeah, I guess. This is this great stuff, but there's yeah. very little coordination because he was a commissioner in the last issue of Batman we just talked about. So the alternative is it's just a simple mistake. It's just like a a, a typo or, or just like Bar had a brain fart. But again, somebody should be line editing this and catching that. So yeah, there's a lot of little visual nods. You're talking about in the police headquarters scene. Catwoman is drinking cream while she's purring on the couch. <laughs> she is all sex in this scene. Yes, I mean she's sprawled out on the couch with just the flimsiest bit of fabric between her legs. The panel after that, Batman and Gordon are walking across the desk, like talking, and she's like, looks like she's about to like tickle Robin or something, and he's like, he's got his cape pulled around him, like, what are you doing? I, I don't know what, why, why are you? I'm feeling weird. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's why he's got his cape in front of him. Yeah. <laughs> 
there was that bit and was it was it Batgirl year no it was it was one of those annuals that was like talking about the Dick Barbara relationship where they were like trapped somewhere together and Batman gets him loose and Robin's got his cape all around him and he's like what's wrong chum and he's like oh nothing nothing Batman <laughs> Uh, raging Teen Titan hormones. Uh, <laughs> uh, when they go to the library, you've got Batman hiding around the Da Vinci flying machine. Yes. Which was probably a nod to what Bob Kane was then saying was one of his inspirations for Batman. But at this point, who really knows right. what, what was really an inspiration for Batman and what was just the hardline story he made up. So I, you know, I hate to be that way, but there's been so much debunked in the last few years. I, at this point, I don't really even know if that's still an actual inspiration to him or, or what. So, but either way, I'm sure that's why that was there. But when I saw that scene uh, with the guys, you know, walking through a sort of library or a museum with the flying machine, like with the bat glider wings and everything, I instantly thought of Batman, the animated series and the episode Joker's favor. Mm hmm. Because that is used as a prop in that it's how Charlie Collins gets Bruce Wayne or gets Batman's attention when he's leaving the fundraiser for Gordon, and yeah. it ends up being used as a prop for for Batman to take out some of the goons. So it's sort of like they replicated this scene in that episode, sort of. That's a good point. I I, I had forgotten that, and that's the first episode with Harley Quinn. So we're back to that. Yep, so. yep. <laughs> Still, I think my favorite Joker episode in the whole series. Yes, I, I think, think so. so too. It was early too. Yeah, I, well, I think it was the first. Joker episode broadcast on television. Yeah, you know the the broadcast order was different than the uh, the production order because right. that one Christmas with the Joker was the second one episode made, but I don't think that one aired for a couple months. No, it didn't. So. You're right. I think uh, you know the Chinese finger puzzle is is a nice death trap, and and I was well acquainted with those from you know every fall festival at my school that I ever went to. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a neat, neat little trap for him. And definitely, you could hear, hear Bill Dozier, his breathless narration as Joker leaves them for the cliffhanger. You know, will Batman and Robin escape? <laughs> you know, blah, blah, blah. tune in tomorrow night. You know, that thing. So. <laughs> Dr. Moon, uh, he, now he is an established character. He first appeared in Batman number 240 and then bounced around many titles written by Denny O'Neill in the 70s. He was created by Denny O'Neill, including Wonder Woman and even Richard Dragon Kung Fu Fighter. And then Barr used him in an issue number 20 of Batman and the Outsiders prior to this. So he was one of those interesting characters that I don't think initially he got a who's who entry. I think he did in one of the updates after this. Uh, maybe update 87 or 88, he got an entry. Um, so he's one of those interesting behind-the-scenes characters in DC Comics that floated from title to title, that writers and editors just kind of, oh, why don't you just use Dr. Moon or something, you know? Yeah. And uh, we've already got a character for this. It was like central casting of, you know, background <laughs> <laughs> support villains or something, you know? Yeah. We'll, we'll call that guy. It's like, Here's his headshot. Here's the, you know, so. <laughs> uh. When he says he wants to wait for Catwoman to wake up before he tortures her, it reminds me of the six-fingered man from The Princess Bride. Mm. <laughs> I don't yeah. know how you feel. You know, that type of thing. <laughs> and please, this is for posterity, so be honest. Yes. <laughs> I love Christopher Guest in that movie. Oh, yeah, he's great. Yeah. The last couple pages of the story, like the structure, I get like the Joker that he, he blasts them with this goo that turns into like this sort of – constricting straight jacket finger trap thing and he leaves them and then we go to his hideout where he's telling everybody what he's going to do with Catwoman and brings in Dr. Moon and this whole thing I was like 
did we miss the part where Batman and Robin escape? Because this would have been an hour later, at least, between just like normal like transportation time and setting all of this up. And then we cut back, and it's, oh, Batman and Robin are still in the library, still struggling with this, and it's nighttime. Like, the lights are out and everything. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. a lot of time has passed, and they're just sitting there. And I, I feel like something would have happened in between. They wouldn't just be there all alone without anybody coming or, like, discovering them or something. Like, especially mm. since he did tell Gordon where they were going. At some mm. point, the police would show up. Um, well, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. So it just uh, felt like the order of these scenes needed to be reversed. Like, they should have gotten out after the Joker left, but then you basically would have had the last four or five pages with the Joker and Dr. Moon, and you wouldn't see Batman in the end of the story. So, right. That's a plot hole I hadn't really thought of that Gordon knew where he was going. Another plot hole is, where did he get the CAT scan device? Didn't they, didn't Batman, Robin, and Catwoman stop them from stealing it? Yeah, yeah, they did. I, <laughs> like, that was in the beginning, so they, they must have just acquired it sometime after that, but they didn't even bring that up, so. Yeah, I think that, that there's a line that's missing that says, my guys picked it up tonight, you know, mm-hmm. so it's, yeah, it's, it's really, but maybe, well, maybe the Joker wasn't in on that that cat scan theft at the beginning you know maybe he wasn't because he didn't have that never mind that's not a plot hole because he didn't that wasn't his idea that was the former cat gang's idea to steal that right because he wouldn't he wouldn't have had the idea until straight line gave him the newspaper and he thought about targeting Catwoman. right so it would have so had then, been... and he saw the whole thing that they stopped the theft of that cat scan device and that gave him the idea to steal it himself and use it to you call Dr. Moon, use it to reprogram Catwoman. Right. Ah, uh, so never mind. It wasn't a plot hole. We just talked through it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we filled that pot, plot hole. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting that, and I don't want to get into spoil the next issue, but it's interesting that the Joker really has just taken issue with the fact that Catwoman would dare switch sides. Um, you know, he, he, it, it's, it's personally insulted him i guess you know that that she would do that and it's a great way to stick it to batman if he succeeds in you know warping her mind back to her criminal ways so it's kind of interesting that the joker you know that just goes to show the joker is not out for monetary gain or this is just this is just a way to torture batman and you know be sadistic you know (laughs) so (laughs) says a lot about the joker even though he doesn't like kill anybody in this story which Mm -hmm. you know he's much more the the prankster joker than the quite lethal joker but like the animated series showed us the joker i like a joker that can go back and forth he can be you know he might he might just slit your throat or he might you know put a harmless exploding cigar in your mouth like he does dr moon or the exploding cigar might literally blow your head off. Uh, <laughs> I, I like my Joker that way, where he's mercurial. He he goes back and forth between, uh, you know, I really don't want to kill you right now, so I'll give you this cigar and just blow up in your face, and then, you know, whatever. But it, and the the gag with Doctor Moon, Doctor Moon is <laughs> Davis does a great job of showing how bemused he is when <laughs> the, the cigar goes off, but then later he hands the Joker a cigar at the end of their <laughs> conversation, and the Joker can appreciate it. He digs it. Yeah. He, he loves it. Yeah, it's like he 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 gets it. You know, this guy's got a sense of humor and he likes it. So, mm-hmm. you know, but in another comic, he may have gotten mad that the the guy out joked him and killed him. You know? <laughs> <laughs> or peeled his own face off or whatever. Uh, oh God, don't get. I know. Mad. <laughs> 
I never bought that. Every every time that. every time we fall too much into our love for these old comics and too much of nostalgia, I just need to remind our listeners that the way these characters are being presented by modern comics and Warner Brothers movies, you know, just to twist the knife a little bit. Well, all I got to say is a good thing Robin wasn't on the roof with Batman and Catwoman in a modern comic book because <laughs> apparently all they know to do on a modern comic book is, well, you know. <laughs> I do, I do. Yeah. Who I wouldn't want to go up on a rooftop in Gotham City. It's hard to tell what the hell you find. <laughs> God, what? <laughs> Who's doing that up here? Jeez. <laughs> Can't believe you managed to make a rooftop in Gotham City more disgusting than it already sounded. <laughs> Look at all the pigeon crap and everything. Ugh. I mean <laughs> <laughs> all right once we got to that point i think we might be done with this issue yeah we, we do get a bar editorial in this one you know he gets he gets a little piece of the pie and and talks about how uh he compares new york to the fictional gotham city and uh, he talks about how new york is pretty seedy and and kind of grimy you know but it, it they've really cleaned up their act in 30 years with my understanding you know they it's a much more um uh, family-friendly type downtown experience nowadays than what it was at one time. So, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> so that that's kind of interesting how things have changed. And and uh, then Denny O'Neill in his From the Den, uh, he actually talks about walking around Greenwich Village with Frank Miller, talking about what he first refers to as Batman: The First Year before calling it Batman Year One later in the same column. Mm-hmm. So at one point. It was maybe going to be called Batman the first year, which does not sound nearly as good as Batman year one. It doesn't roll off the tongue, no, no. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Uh, and since everybody and their grandmother has ripped off year one from that story, I'm glad somebody changed it. Right. Um, he also mentions Dark Knight, Man of Steel, and Watchmen, and rightly predicts that 1986 will be remembered as, and I quote, an important year in comics history. <laughs> I think he was right. I... <laughs> Looking back now, more than 30 years later, yeah, it seems like. Yeah, that was a pretty – that was a watershed year, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, we also get the first mention of Batman Year 2 in these pages, to be by Barr and Davis. And he was one quarter right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, it's partially by Barr and Davis, which we'll see as, as we move along. But, uh, we'll get uh-huh. to it eventually. We'll get to it, yeah. But, yeah, this is a fantastic start to a great run, and I was really happy to – very happy and enthusiastic to cover this issue. So. Me too. And like I said, like I had little nitpicky problems with it. There were a few things where I thought, okay, Barr is still kind of working his way into finding who the characters are, but there is such an energy and a joy about this that that feels like these guys love this material. They're taking what worked about classic Batman and just presenting it a little bit more serious but they're still they're doing it with fun and at heart um and it's again and we'll we will continue to talk about these every month because it's the the energy about this series is is just kinetic i keep coming back to it's so fun it's like buzzing when you get these issues yeah i I think you can just feel like they're going oh my god we're doing detective comics (laughs) You know, it's, we're doing the original Batman title. It's not Batman and the Outsiders. It's Detective Freaking Comics, and we're the creative team on it. That's mm-hmm. that's the feeling you get. That's like we better bring our A game and <laughs> they didn't, work they it didn't, out. Yeah, they didn't work their way up to something. They're like, who do you want for the first one? Catwoman and the Joker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. 
We're not starting out with the Scarecrow or Mad Hatter. We're starting out with Catwoman and the Joker. <laughs> well, I guess we'll take a break, run some more promos, and we come back, we'll tackle your listener feedback. Stop and listen! Stop and listen to me! Listen! Listen! Listen to me! They're not human! Everyone! They're here already! Your next! November 4th, 1988. Earth is invaded by an alien alliance composed of several species including the Dominators, the Kuns, the Danigarians, and the Durlins. And they want our superheroes. Even though Australia has been decimated, the United Nations response is unequivocal. Drop dead. First Strike, the Invasion podcast, takes you back to that moment in time and covers the entire Invasion DC Comics crossover. Issue by issue, tie-in by tie-in. Join Bass and Siskoid at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on iTunes. First Strike, the Invasion Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Remember, Melbourne. All right, before getting into the feedback that we received from episode four, we got a preemptive email from our friend Javi the Golden Boy talking about this issue of Detective Comics that we just talked about. And Javi said, I love this issue. I mean, if I could only read one thing for the rest of my life, it would be the trade that collects Mike W. Barr and Alan Davis's regrettably short run on Detective Comics. The art, plot, and dialogue are all beautiful and capture everything I love about Batman and his world. It's not too dark, but it's not too light either. It perfectly balances the inherent seriousness and joy found in the greatest Batman comics, like the beautiful love child of Batman, the Brave and the Bold, and Batman the Animated Series. Oh, interesting take. And Javi says, thanks for the reminder to revisit one of the best stories in all of Batman comics, Javi the Golden Boy. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. That that I mean, we talked about Batman the animated series being a great synthesis of of all things Batman. But I love Batman: Brave and the Bold too. I mean, it I, it was so much fun. I mean, it was and it was such a breath of fresh air in what was going on in the comics and the Batman movies. And good lord, we found out we were going to go even darker with the Batman movies. But you know, it it, it amazes me that it even got made and was on Cartoon Network. You know, for several years. I know. Yeah, and it was like, where can I find a version of Aquaman that I like? I was like, oh, that show. That was that was so good. And and like the characters that they pulled out of the you know the mothballs and everything with that. Like some of the villains that they had cameos, but also just like some of the heroes that they used. It was yeah. That was that was certainly a love letter to the comics. And yeah, yeah. So Javi, yeah, Javi liked the issue that we just talked about, and he's looking forward to more of these runs. So uh, we are too. All right, moving on to the feedback that we received for Nightcast Episode 4 last time. Uh, we got new Twitter favorites and retweets from Too Old Too New Podcast, Dr. Ange, Austin Kukendall, Bad Touch Dr. Light at Chef High. I love that name, Bad Touch Dr. Light. Between the Pages, Bill Bear, Brad Dade, Codeman, Coffee and Comics, Comic Reflections, Comic Retrospective, Craig 101, Daniel R. Budnick, Daniel Duchette, David Ace Gutierrez, David Weeder, DC in the 80s, Eli Loomis, Fire and Water Network, Firestorm Fan, Jeffrey Brown, who tweeted that he had never read the Max Allen Collins run before, but he would listen to the episode anyway, Chimbal, Gabriel M. Cox, The Hammer Strikes, Jeremy Gunter, J. Slab 425, Justice's First Dawn, Laurel at Mountainflower1, Longbox Crusade, Mark Wiggins, Matches Balone, Michael Bailey, Mikey Flash, Millennial Eastwood, 
Nethead, Peter War, Relatively Geeky, Richard Field, Rolled Spine Podcast, Sean Phillips, Siskoid, Stephen Bird, Super Ali, at Ernest Almeida, Swamp Thing, at DC World Swampy, Trekker Talk, Two True Freaks, Warlord Worlds, Xenozoic Xenophiles, and Zoom Yukonori. Since last episode, we've received Facebook likes and shares from Abel Padilla, Andrew Leyland, J. David Weeder, Jimmy McGlinchey, Charlie Niemeyer, Brad Dade, David Foster, Jeremy Gunter, Pat Sampson, H. Daniel Rybolt, Eric Royer, John M. Wilson, Cindy Franklin, I have no idea who that is, Michael Bailey, The Long Box Crusade, J. David Weeder, The Headcast Network, Task Force X, Starman Manhunter Adventure Hour, Head Speaks, and G.I. Joe, A Real American Headcast. I think some of those were connected at the end. (laughs) (laughs) I think so. Uh, As Uh, Cindy Franklin, she's a Facebook friend of mine. Oh, okay, okay. I I didn't. I think that's the connection. I I think I saw her picture. She's hot. Uh, some of those Facebook shares had some very flattering things to say, like John M. Wilson, who said, And the rest of my podcast queue gets bumped down to make room for this near the top. After Jay and Miles, but that's a respectable position. <laughs> yes, we'll take that, yes. Michael Bailey said, This show hits the top of my listen-to pile every time it comes out. And the Longbox Crusade said, Really enjoying this podcast. Well, thank you all very much. We also received Facebook comments from the following fine folks, J. David Weeder, who asked us, how does Batman make it through doorways with those ears, referring to the way Jim Starlin drew him in Batman 402. Yeah, and I, I think after that I uh, linked the uh, the video from Star Wars with the stormtrooper walking into the control room and bumping his head. Yeah. John M. Wilson left another comment before, once we first uh, released the episode, he said, Ack, Keenan and I still haven't read the detective issue for last episode. Gotta get that pup in gear. Okay, we've got some comments from fireandwaterpodcast.com, of course, and lots of comments there, so thanks, everybody. That's a really great place to leave comments because then people can talk back and forth, which we got a lot of that this time. So Yeah, you get like a whole conversation between like four of you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> David Ace Gutierrez, executive producer of Pod Dylan, had this to say. I remember getting this issue in a three-pack of comics around the time Batman, 1989, was headed to screens. What immediately struck me was the ridiculous length of those ears, turning Batman into a rabbit, not his finest hour. <laughs> yeah, it, that three-pack got around. Like I said, I, I had a – I don't know why, again, those, those three issues were the subject of a three-pack. But, yeah, and the, the bat ears were – you thought the bat bot in the recent comics had bunny ears. But, yeah, they begin here. <laughs> Jackrabbit Man. Yes. Uh, Rob Kelly from the upcoming Digest cast and like 17 out of the 24 shows on the Fire and Water Network. He said, fun episode, fellas, though it sounded like Ryan needed a bowl of soup throughout. I think I still do. Or maybe that thing that Saw Gerrera uses in Rogue One. Save the rebellion! Save the dream! <laughs> Rob also said, I agree completely Batman is not out for revenge. He's out to prevent there ever being another seven-year-old experiencing the trauma of crime ruining their life. One of the great details I thought Batman Begins added to the mythos was the idea that Joe Chill was not some snarling, completely evil psycho. He was merely a guy who did something stupid and terrible. If Batman was just out for revenge, he could have stopped his mission the minute Chill buys it. I agree, and I do think that's a good point. And it's this is a conversation that I had with Tom Panarese back when we were doing the Secret Origins podcast, is to me, and I know they have told really good stories with Batman meeting Joe Chill uh, and, and that confrontation. There have been some amazing stories about that. But in my sort of headcanon, I like the idea that he never really finds the identity of the man who shot his parents because 
I don't want them to ever really get that sense of closure of, of, of bringing that guy down, that it's always just crime, the idea mm. of crime sort of more or less manifested and took his parents away, and that is why Batman's war will never end. So mm. that's, yeah, that's I, my I, thing. Yeah. I can see that. I, I do like the fact that me personally – I do like the fact that he does find out it's chill and that after chill is dead, he continues on. To me, that makes Batman more heroic. That puts a signpost out that says he isn't out for revenge because if he was, like Rob said, he'd just quit. You know, so I do like it. Plus, I can't get past my love for the untold legend of the Batman that retold the story where he's like, I'm Bruce Wayne. You know, he pulls the cow back and, you know, which they did on Brave and the Bold, which was freaking nuts. I couldn't believe that they did that on the cartoon. But again. Well, this is a deal breaker for me, so I guess this is going to be the end of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's over. <laughs> uh, that, that got a conversation going, though, on the fireandwaterpodcast.com page, and we won't read all those back-and-forth comments, but we'll read some. And uh, David A. Gutierrez chimed in and said, I always liked the idea that he was out there because of guilt. He's pretty stunted emotionally and never evolved past the point of a Zorro fantasy. It's why he's a dick to everyone close to him, and he doesn't know how to be an adult. <laughs> to which I responded, I know this is one way to go, but I prefer Batman who is more emotionally mature than that. It's unfortunately what the post-crisis Batman evolves into, but I personally subscribe to Rob's idea of a man who doesn't want to see anyone go through his personal hell. It also makes him hard to know and dissonant at times, but he's not some completely damaged man-child either. So... That's kind of my official Batman type. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then, like a broken power record, David Ace Gutierrez came back and said, I think you and I had the same breaking point. When Bruce punched Dick for the millionth time, I kind of had it with Bruce slash Batman. I'm not sure if it was the editors or the writers or a combination of the two, but their version of the lone vigilante didn't mesh with the fact that there were 80 other books out there co-starring or spinning off of Batman. It made for many forced moments that were clearly used to forward the story. Also, I think it was the 1998 San Diego Comic-Con panel with that era's Bat writers that turned what was an enjoyable book into a misery cluster for me. Greg Rucka really hammered home the fact that Batman would fail every time he got into the suit because no matter what he did, people died. So he fails every night, and what's the definition of insanity again? <laughs> yeah. Doing the it, same thing over and over, expecting a different result. Exactly. And and I, 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 will, I agree with Dave there. That... That era of Batman, particularly the Bruce Wayne murder fugitive, was just a – it really angered me. That whole storyline was just – I'm sorry. I know there's probably fans of it. I hated it. I thought it portrayed Batman as just at his absolute worst of being this this man-child who can't decide if he wants to have a bunch of team of crime fighters around or not. He doesn't want their help. He does want their help. And, and, and yeah, that whole miserable, you know, I'm going to fail every night. Why am I doing this? I mean, that's just – you know, that, that's a case of – applying way too much realism to a fantastic character and then getting absolutely no joy out of it. So, I actually haven't read a lot of that era's Batman books. Uh, and I like Greg Rucka a lot. He's one of my favorite comic book writers. I like Ed Brubaker a lot. He's one of my favorite comic book writers. But I have not read much of their Batman stuff. I've read Gotham Central. I've read Catwoman. But most of my love for them comes from other stuff. It's not from their work on Batman, which is surprising because you'd think I would love you know my favorite character being written by some of my favorite writers. But I think it's just what little I did read, and I kind of just knew that that era of Batman just presents him in a way that... Mm, yeah, it's it's too realistic, and you can't have Batman that realistic without going so far towards the Nolan movies that you're losing the joy of the character. 
Right. Yeah. Uh, Martin Gray of the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl commented, To me, that's always been an awful cover. It's such an ugly image. And that 70s holdout logo without the proper backing bat is all kinds of nothing. I also hate the melodramatic cover blurb, the likes of which Denny would later have in a storybook-type style for Death in the Family or Captain Adam. And in this darkest moment, Plastique knows compassion. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those names. Dick and Jane for the nice young couple. Roach and Spider for the no marks. It's all a bit on the nose. I think the new Jason originally probably was a Denny O'Neill more than a Max Allen Collins, but still he was complicit. Ginger Jason forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the old red-headed Jason Todd, yeah. yeah. Uh, so Max Allen Collins was just meant to be there for a couple of issues, and yet he got to write two essays. Yawn, just give us letters. <laughs> yeah, that's a stick. Uh, that, yeah. Martin doesn't like that, that they kicked out the letters from the Lynn Ween era. Uh, it's interesting that straight away, he continues, it's interesting that straight away they have Jason being morally off. Master of everything, Marine with a dead wife. Tommy is just one boring bundle, bundle of cliches. <laughs> a Batman story with street thugs rather than a proper villain has to be amazing to be worthwhile. This isn't. Batman's reluctance to fight Tommy is just dumb. He's killing people. Who cares that he's a cop? Batman knows people lose it. And this is possibly the worst Starlin art I've ever seen, from the lazy splash page to the ridiculous ears to Alfred the Peanuts. <laughs> Apart from that, fantastic issue. <laughs> Aside from everything about it being awful, yeah, yeah, it was fine then. So. Martin liked the staples that were in it. Uh, <laughs> I think that's about it. <laughs> Uh, Joe X shared the following insight. Batman fighting an imposter Batman named Tommy? I think we'll see this again. <laughs> Good point. Maybe. Hmm? Maybe. <laughs> Michael Bailey of the newly announced Fortress of Baileytude podcast network had this to say. If the Bar Davis Batman was an 80s version of the 60s television series, then the Max Allen Collins issues were Batman as produced by Stephen J. Cannell. <laughs> <laughs> I can just see him at the end with the typewriter and he throws the paper. Mike continues, seriously, read those issues and imagine a Mike Post score playing in the background. Can it be the Mike Post score to the Captain America movies? I love that. I was actually uh, thinking of some of my posts like music, but the only so, like the only TV themes that were coming to mind like working for Batman were actually themes from like '90s shows like NYPD Blue or maybe I think he did the theme for Silk Stockings. Uh, mm. Like I, I couldn't work Rockford Files or Hill Street Blues into the Batman world. I was trying, but <laughs> yeah, working. that won't quite work. I don't think the Batmobile rolling out slowly to Hill Street Blues ain't gonna work. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> uh, Mike continues, I'm not the biggest fan of Colin's work on Batman, but I don't loathe it either. Batman number 402 and 403 are solid crime dramas with a little bit of that profiling shtick that Criminal Minds has milked for over a decade. Batman has had many there, but for the grace of God, go I moments, and this was one of the better ones in my opinion. Camion is one of those people that believe that Batman is in this to make sure what happened to him doesn't happen to another little boy or girl. Sure, he has the flashy costume and the cool car and the awesome villains, but scratch all that away, I think his base need is to protect people. This has gotten lost with some incarnations, but it's the take on the character that I prefer. Great episode, fellas. I look forward to the next one. Baron Davis, let the Batman using a guy as a human shield or threaten a man with prison violation begin. <laughs> That was snarky. I love those stories. I really do. <laughs> yeah, well, that, uh, one of those instances is coming up in the next Detective episode. Yep, so. yep we're going to get to it. Uh, Lewis had this thought on the should Batman kill debate. 
I'm of the opposite mindset with I don't have to save you. Batman was faced with an unrepentant adversary determined to finish the job with an entire city. He had unknowingly been merciful to this person earlier in the film, and in return, here he was being pushed to the limit to keep the villain's plans from reaching fruition. A villain whose manipulation of economics contributed to his parents' deaths. Stuck in a deep trap of the villain's making, I thought Batman had found a cathartic third option between killing him and keeping such a threat alive. Uh, I just, uh, this, just the the framing of the of the line. Just I I won't kill you, but I don't have to save you. I think I I don't know if there's a legal loophole around that, but I I think it's like no, you are you are by. You're choosing inaction, therefore condemning him to death. You have the option of saving him, and you're choosing not to. I think that's the same as killing him. Mm. So I just uh, and and if you want to say fine that that, that this is an extreme circumstance where killing Rachel Ghoul is merited, you can argue that. You can argue whether or not Rachel Ghoul deserves to die, or that Batman should be allowed to pass sentence on him in this case. That's a different argument. I still say that saying. I don't have to save you. It like gives him the out. Like that's a, like a morally acceptable like clause of just like wiping his hands and saying I didn't kill him. I just didn't save him. No, I don't buy it. You have the opportunity. You have the power and the means to pull him out of the, out of a death trap. You're choosing not to. You are condemning him to death. That's my take. You can argue about whether or not he was justified or not, but saying I don't have to save you is an excuse. I call BS on that. But, well, we're going to get Batman doing pretty much the exact same thing in the comic books down the line in one of the big storylines. So it'll be interesting to see what we think at the time. We so. will, yeah, we will have that discussion again. Yes. Um, getting back to Lewis's uh, comment, dipping back into earlier Nightcasts, I was watching the 1986 film Cobra, and Andrew Robinson, who plays the detective busting Stallone's ass, would have made an excellent G. Gordon Godfrey. Mm-hmm. Yes, he would. And he, he's... He's uh, Andrew Robinson's great. Of course, he was on Deep Space Nine, but I always think of him as the uh, the killer in the first uh, Dirty Harry movie, hmm. and he was fantastic in that. So yeah, he he's an underrated actor. So he he, he even looks like G. Gordon, like G. Gordon Godfrey's supposed to look. <laughs> Which version of Godfrey? We've had three. The, the one from Legends, not any either of the Batman versions. <laughs> Mark Baker Wright commented on not the comic itself, but the Spinnerack segment. He wrote, please excuse the somewhat off-topic observations, but as Transformers are my first geekdom love, I was, of course, pleased to hear your observations about the multitude of Transformers-related comic books coming out the same month as Batman number 402. As you might imagine, the period was Transformers' golden age. Never before had so many issues of Transformers-related comic book fiction been released at the same time. Not in any other time afterward during Marvel's tenure on the franchise. IDW would surpass this record, but that wouldn't take place until more than two decades later. Regarding the color choices for the Transformers the movie crossover, Hot Rod's pinkish color scheme is partially due to the fact that, unlike most Transformers characters, the new characters introduced in the movie had their animation models created before the toys were designed. Hot Rod was intended to be pinkish to help differentiate his design from the more mature Rodimus Prime design. Of course, the toys ended up being more or less the same color. The block coloring is essentially the work of Neil Yomtov, who perhaps ironically was the most consistent feature on the Marvel run, being the only person to work on pretty much every issue, including crossovers, before the franchise was resurrected as Generation 2. While his decision to use large blocks of single color is widely mocked, even by Transformers fans today, it was no doubt done in part due to the large number of characters, many having quite complex detailing that the franchise required. 
Thanks as always for the insight and enthusiasm you bring to this podcast. Well, that's interesting. You know, I, I didn't know about Hot Rod and, and Rodimus Prime. I still think that the, I understand why the Transformers were colored that way, but, I you know, it, it was a large cast of characters, and Marvel probably thought, well, they're cars. You know, <laughs> we color cars in one big block of color, so <laughs> so we'll color them in one big block of color. But it, it, it did detract from my enjoyment of them as a kid. I just remember thinking, wishing that they had better Adrian Roy should have went over to Marvel and colored Transformers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then we would have lost around Batman, though, so we don't want that. True. Mm-hmm. Uh, Edo Bosnar chimed in. This was an interesting episode, gentlemen. I'm quite curious about the Batman stories by Collins because I otherwise love his writing. And by that, I mean his novels, like his Quarry books and others, which are all real page turners. To date, I've actually read none of his comics work, not even his much lauded mystery. Like you guys note, it seems like Collins would be a natural fit for Batman, but I've noticed that there's quite a few who seem to dislike his work with the character. I'll be interested in hearing your views on this sub- on his subsequent stories. And yeah, we sort of mentioned that, but like if you looked at his resume on paper, this guy should be an amazing Batman writer. Mm-hmm. But something about it didn't click. And then like we were just talking about it, like Greg Rucka and uh, Ed Brubaker, these are fantastic mystery crime noir type of writers. But their take on Batman just I, – I think a lot of people of our generation or like uh, around this era are just kind of like, eh, too dark, too grim and gritty. So it's it's a lot of personal taste. But. Yeah. I, you know, I like some of Brubaker I, – I, I like some of Rucker's work. And, and overall, I like Brubaker's take on, on the Batman titles. But it was that, that particular crossover kind of accentuated that it's just kind of like a joyless run. There's yeah. just – there's no – it is the antithesis of this high energy, uh, you know, run we're covering right now with Barr and Davis. It's mm-hmm. the exact opposite of that. So it's just, uh, you know, if you like that sort of thing, it's well written, but it's just not my type of Batman story. I'm really that interested in reading. And I kind of feel like, for me, I I have almost the opposite feeling when it comes to Daredevil. Because, you know, a lot of people like a more whimsical, sort of high-flying, good-natured Matt Murdock daredevil, but he was sort of defined by Frank Miller's sort of more grim and gritty stories. But Mm -hmm. my personal favorite take on Daredevil was a long run by Brian Michael Bendis, who basically Mm. took what Frank Miller had done and said, okay, you put Matt Murdock through a lot of misery, but I'm going to put him through a lot of misery. (laughs) And it was like every three issues, something worse and worse happened. And it kept on bringing him lower. And it's like, how many times can you break this character's heart? But I don't know. I, I love that run. And like, talk about joyless. Whoa, boy, it is a, it is a dirge. But I, I really liked how it was written. I love the way it was drawn by Alex Maleev, and it's just that is my, my favorite take on that character. But I know a lot of other people think it, they hate it just because it is the opposite of Here Comes Daredevil, the man without fear, you know, the classic yeah. look. So. Uh, anyway, getting back to Edo Bosnar's uh, comment. By the way, on the topic of Collins, I have to recommend his three Jack and Maggie Star mysteries, A Killing in Comics, Strip for Murder, and Seduction of the Innocent, which are all set in the late 1940s, early 1950s, and feature very thinly disguised analogs to the major personalities of the comic book and newspaper scenes at the time. They're really fun and lighthearted stories with tons of Easter eggs for anyone with a passing knowledge of comics history in the U.S., that was not good. I'd never heard of those, but uh, if I ever get the free time to read for fun when I'm not doing a podcast, I, I think I might have to check those out because those sound interesting. I remember him coming out with a book called Seduction of the Innocent and thinking, ha, way to stick it to Wortham, you know. <laughs> 
One of my favorite um, all-time novels is um, Michael Chabon's The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, which mm. is about two young Jewish writers and artists who create a mystery man type of hero in the in the early 1930s, basically a, a cipher for comics. And amazing book, and they like it gets into his his love for the medium, but also just all it's, all, it's a huge book. Yeah, I really like that one. I'm ashamed to admit I've never read that. I have I've been on my to read list for for many many years, and I've just <laughs> never gotten around to it. So I one of these days I will have to read that. Yeah. Nathaniel Wayne from Council of Geeks called us out on being too geeky. He said, "I think you guys got a little over nitpicky on the timeline thing. I get that you were trying to illustrate how DC was flying by the seat of their pants in regards to Batman, but I guess it's just that kind of nitpickery that makes me start to do the hand wave motion and think, yeah, yeah, yeah." I get the feeling that in general I'm way more forgiving of minor continuity gaffes than many other comic book readers. Continuity is something that is great when it's tight, but it's never bothered me when it's loose, at least so far as continuing stories by multiple creators go. That's not to say there aren't some gaffes that make me go, wait, what? But in my mind, if the only way to be sure that it's a potential mistake is to take out a piece of paper and start doing math, then maybe just move along and don't get hung up on it. Uh, wait a minute, Nathaniel. You're listening to a comic book podcast. <laughs> you know, he, it's by its very nature is nitpicky and geeky. <laughs> he talks about '90s X-Men and Image Comics by choice, so you know, pot meat kettle. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and he's going to have a field day with us going on about Gordon being a captain and a commissioner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Mr. Paul Hicks, koala puncher extraordinaire and one of the co-hosts of Waiting for Doom, chimed in with this pithy comment. I always thought this cover was representative of Batman's interest in auto-asphyxiation. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for that. On the rooftop. (laughs) (laughs) Our favorite Canadian, Siskoid, of the First Strike Invasion podcast. Wait a minute. minute. Did you write that? Siskoid's not my favorite Canadian. Art Girl is. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, Bass is mine, really. So. Okay. Oh, okay. Wait a minute. Our, one of our favorite Canadian Siskoid of the First Strike Invasion podcast says, I don't know Collins from Adam, but I've come to the realization that I just don't like Starlin's work. I don't like his writing on DC books, and I don't like his art, which has some very wonky anatomy. There, I've admitted it. Well, now that you've admitted it, that's the first step, you know. <laughs> so, no, that that's fine. And, you know, Starlin's style is, you know, it, it is one of those things that, it's got a dynamic nature to it. It's got an energy. It's got a, you know, everybody's very muscular and there's a lot of tension in his artwork. But there are some, sometimes his faces are really thin or wide or there, there is some weird anatomy stuff going on in his artwork. I, I will admit it's not, it's not overly consistent. Hmm. Uh, it's not like he's got a model sheet that he, Rob can groan all he wants about Kurt Swan, but every Kurt Swan Superman looked like the same guy from panel to panel, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I actually like I I'm not that familiar with Starlin's like his artwork at Marvel just cuz I wasn't a big Marvel cosmic guy at the time like I've mm-hmm. never I've I've seen some of the things that he's written but in terms of like what he is actually like produced like artwork wise I'm not as familiar with that uh and in terms of his DC output I mean we will continue to talk about his Batman stuff Paul Hicks came back and mentioned that he really liked Cosmic Odyssey, and he put that mm-hmm. head and shoulders above all of his other DC stuff, and having Mike Mignola on the art didn't hurt that. I There is a lot about Cosmic Odyssey that I do like. Mm-hmm. My big sticking point with it is the, its treatment of 
John Stewart, uh, yes. and what that does to the character and where it leaves him in the aftermath. Mm-hmm. Um, not crazy about that, but I did enjoy that story, and I think probably more so for Mignola's art than the story, but I did like the story too, so... Yeah, I'm with you on the John Stewart angle. Yeah, that really, I mean, way to take a, a character with a lot of potential and just totally sidetrack him for almost a decade because of, of that storyline. Uh, you know, somebody should have just came along and said, out of continuity. Uh, <laughs> uh, Jimmy McGlinchey pointed us to a recent interview with Max Allen Collins at Comic Book Resources. If you can wade through the never-ending pop-up ads, it's really worth checking out. He le- left us a link there. And he wrote, the above is a recent interview Max Allen Collins did discussing his Batman work. Apparently, a lot of the issues stem from the fact that editorial and Collins did not talk a lot during his time on the book, coupled with the fact that there was no unifying vision of Collins' Batman with a slew of artists portraying Collins' vision. I guess in today's world of instant communication, we forget that that wasn't the case in the 1980s. For me, while Collins was not my favorite writer, I did not dislike his stuff. It was probably a bit bland for what Miller had set up in year one, but it was serviceable enough. It may have been even better if he had a consistent art team in place to portray his vision. I enjoyed this episode and get better soon, Ryan. Well, thank you very much, Jimmy. And, and that was something that we talked about. I mean, I've mentioned Collins has eight stories in his run with six different artists. That, that might have had something to do with it. On the other hand, if he was still living in Iowa and just sending his scripts in by mail, there might not have been as much communication, in which case, if that's by choice or by design that he's not talking to the artists, I, I don't know if that really affects the quality of the storytelling. It might, but uh, I don't want to dive too much into this because this will be something that we pick apart episode by episode the more we get into Collins' work. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, like us, MTC appreciated the link that Jimmy shared. Thanks for the link. It gives me empathy for the working conditions Max Allen Collins had and provided good insights. I wonder how the stories would read if Denny O'Neill, while a brilliant writer himself, let Max Allen Collins call more of the shots, like the splintered baseball bat bringing Batman down. I'm still not clear whose idea it was to have Bruce fire Dick, though. That bothers me, but at the end of the day, Bruce is human and is fully capable of a stupid decision. I'm just glad they make amends later. (laughs) It's a two-pronged stupid decision because it's the stupid decision of firing your trained, uh, proven partner over one incident and then picking up some street kid you don't know and making him rob. (laughs) Yeah, having that happen in the span of 15 pages doesn't really wash very well. That's the big burn of that is the time – the way it's presented. The idea itself is flawed, and then the the presentation of it doesn't help matters any. Right, right. Uh, Diablo Frank of the Rolled Spine Podcast Network schooled us on sales numbers, presented a whole list of how Batman was selling over a number of years. And then he also had this to add. As previously mentioned, I picked up the three-pack of Batman 401 through 403 at Circus World well before it was bought out by KB Toys. Jim Starlin was one of the first comic artists whose work I could recognize and is a lifelong favorite. It's probable his cover is what got me to buy the package, and a happy surprise to find he did the interiors too. Starlin wasn't in peak form, in part because this was a period where he began transitioning out of drawing for most of the late 80s and early 90s. He also always hated drawing real things like cars, which is why he did so much side and so little urban vigilante stuff. 
Finally, I think this was around the time Epic Comics became very late in sending Starlin his royalty checks for the bi-monthly Dreadstar, which prompted him to move the title to First Comics. I believe Starlin drew this specific issue of Batman because he needed quick cash to pay his tax bill for that year. Sam Delarosa had started inking him on Dreadstar, and I think he'd adapted his style to a bolder blocker line to proof it against embellishment. I disliked the change because it made his work look stiffer and more cartoony, really emphasizing the Swanderson influence of his work. It was still Starlin, so I was still happy, and it was better than most of his DC work from earlier in the decade. I wish he'd used the style for more of his DC Comics Presents issues for instance. That's a good point on, on Starlin's art that it changed. I, I noticed that it's, his inking looked really thick. It kind of reminded me. I know Al Milgram inked him a lot at Marvel. Hmm. And to me, it almost looked like Al Milgram was inking him here because Al Milgram has a very thick, very brushy line work uh, going on. And, and it, it's not quite Al Milgram, but it but it did remind me of it. And I, and I knew it wasn't Milgram, but it just it almost seemed like he absorbed some of Milgram. But maybe it was uh, maybe it was because he was uh, you know protecting himself from being inked by other inkers that he uh, kind of changed his style to a point. So it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, MTC continued, I thought the talk about how long Batman has been active was interesting, but I wouldn't put too much stock in anything Tommy's drunk mother said. She didn't even recognize the difference between Bruce and her own son, even if Tommy was wearing a surprisingly authentic Batman costume. I would say Bruce has been Batman at least nine years in Batman 402, if we say Robin hit the scene in his third year. Now I wonder how long it would be before Bruce felt Robin was ready for patrol, but Dick had enough circus background that his training period wouldn't have to be as long as most people. Uh, MTC then said, I'm having my 12-year-old son Silas read the comics covered in the show after I do. He asked me if there was an order he should follow when his homework stack from me included Batman 401 through 402 and Detective Comics 568. I said it didn't really matter, but let him know the publication order. He was wanting to start with Batman 402, which says something about that cover. (laughs) And something about the Magpie cover that we won't let go. (laughs) (laughs) And last but not least, Brian Linton said... Nice job, gentlemen. My experience with Batman and comic books is relatively limited. I'm more familiar with his appearances in TV, beginning with the Super Friends, and movies. My first real exposure to him in print was in Grant Morrison's JLA. I found his portrayal as the mastermind strategist to be interesting, since that is a role normally played by supervillains. I was interested enough to pick up some issues of No Man's Land, but eventually found him a little too grim for my taste. So yes, I did go through a Batman phase. Disclaimer, not all comic book fans may experience a Batman phase. All of that is to say, I'm enjoying the podcast, and I'm looking forward to receiving a proper education in the history of the Dark Knight. In regards to Jim Starlin, I'm most familiar with him as the writer of Silver Surfer back in the early 90s, which was one of the first books I followed on a regular basis. It's interesting to see his work as a penciler inker. While I'm keeping an open mind on his work, I have to say Batman's ears are a little too long for me. (laughs) I think that was the number one complaint about last issue was Batman's ears are too long. (laughs) Yeah. If we stick around long enough to get to Kelly Jones, just wait. (laughs) And I guess that's it. That's all the comments. Yep, that's all we got. Um, We want to thank everybody who wrote in, who left a comment, either on the website, on Facebook, on Twitter. Everybody who keeps helping the show out on social media, please go to iTunes. Leave us a review there. It helps people find the show. Um, Your support for the show has been great so far. We're really enjoying this. Next time on Batman Nightcast, Episode 6, Batman 403, which continues Batman's struggle against Tommy Karma, the imposter Batman. I am a dog, a 
Batman Nightcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Batman Nightcast. You can find me on Twitter at SupermatesPod or email me at SupermatesPodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or email me at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. This podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed here belong solely to us. All music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you for listening. Why are you